Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, we are going to talk about circumcision. And we're going to talk about circumcision for two reasons. The first is that Genesis 17 uses the word circumcise ten times. It is the theme of chapter 17. It is the big idea of the text. And it is the first time in the Bible that we see the practice of circumcision. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is... Please talk with your dad. It's Father's Day today, and I'm sure he would love to explain circumcision to you on Father's Day. Reason number two is that circumcision points to essential spiritual realities. Circumcision points to essential spiritual realities. The word circumcise is used hundreds of times all throughout the Bible, largely because circumcision points to deep spiritual realities. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7:19, circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. It is nothing. In and of itself, it is nothing. The meaning of circumcision is very important, though. The act of circumcision, the cutting away of the foreskin of the flesh, in and of itself is not what makes you right with God or cut off from God. So why is it significant? Well, it is significant because circumcision is a sign. It is a sign that shows us the character and nature of God, and it points to the nature of the Christian life. It helps us understand what it's like to walk with God by faith. And so if we do not understand circumcision from Genesis 17, which is the first time we see circumcision in the Bible, if we don't understand circumcision from Genesis 17, it will be difficult to see the significance of circumcision at all. So let's jump into the story, and there are two parts of the story I want to look at with you this morning. The first is that Abraham laughs. And the second is that Abraham obeys. Abraham laughs and Abraham obeys. So let's start with Abraham laughs. In verse 15, it is the first time Sarah is included in the promise by name. It is implied all throughout the story that Sarah will have a child, that Abraham and Sarah will have the child of promise, but she is not named in the promise until verse 15. Verse 15 says, God said to Abraham, as for your wife Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will produce nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. At this point, Abraham knows that the descendants that God promised to him will come through Sarah. Not through Hagar, not through Ishmael, rather through Sarah and their offspring together. Now look at Abraham's response to this promise in verse 17. Abraham fell face down. Abraham fell face down. So he gets this promise and he falls face down before God. Then he laughed. That's what it says. Then he laughed. And commentators have debated for centuries over the nature of this laugh. Why does he laugh? What is the purpose of this laugh? Is it a nervous laugh? Is it a cynical laugh? Is it a mocking laugh? Is he laughing with joy and amazement? What is going on with this laugh? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to make a couple of observations from the text. The first is in verse 17. We need to notice the question that Abraham asks. Abraham fell face down. Then he laughed and said to himself. So he's laughing and he's saying something to himself. He's asking himself a question. Can a child be born to a 100-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? Abraham is 99 at this point. Sarah is 90. And Abraham is thinking about all the women that he knows who are in their 90s who have had children. 
That's a very short list. No one is on that list. It never happens. So he's looking around. He says, no one in their 90s has children. And I'm 99 years old. So he's thinking to himself, this is highly improbable that Sarah in her 90s would have a child and that I would be able to help Sarah have a child when I'm 99 years old or 100 years old. And so he's saying this is highly improbable. And then in verse 18, he says, So Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael were acceptable to you. If only Ishmael were acceptable to you. Abraham says, God, can we just go with my plan? I already have a son. You promised me a son. We were trying to have children for, for many decades, seven, maybe up to 70 years, and then we finally have a son. I finally have this son, Ishmael. Can we just go with Ishmael? If only Ishmael were acceptable to you. And this is where we need to observe a principle. Here's the principle. That the life of faith and the promises of God is life-giving and exhausting. You need to understand this if you're going to live by faith in the promises of God. The life of faith and the promises of God, it is life-giving. It is life-giving and it's exhausting. I believe Abraham laughs not because he's hard-hearted. Abraham is not cynical. He's not bitter and angry towards God. He laughs because he's surprised by the plan and he's exhausted. It is hard to live by faith in the promises of God. The Apostle Paul calls the life of faith the good fight of faith. It is a battle. It is a war. It is a wrestling match. In the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews calls the life of faith the race of endurance. It is the ultimate endurance race, which by definition is painful. To endure means to remain under the pain. And if you walk with Christ for 10 years, if you walk with Christ for 30 years or 50 years, you will suffer. Dear brothers and sisters, you will suffer. You will experience confusion and disappointment and heartache over the course of time. Some of you here this morning, you're exhausted. You're exhausted in the life of faith. You're exhausted in the Christian life. You have grown weary. And when you grow weary, you tend to be impatient. Uh, you, you tend to want to hurry, hurry up and get stuff done. You tend to just go through the motions of the Christian life. You tend to take the path of least resistance, which only leads to more exhaustion and more weariness. It only tires you out in the long run to take shortcuts. Many people have asked me over the years, they've asked me a version of this question, if the Christian life is life-giving, which do you believe it is life-giving to follow Christ? You do. Is it life-giving to follow Christ? Absolutely. If the Christian life is life-giving, then why is it exhausting? then why is it hard? And there are many reasons it's difficult, but I want you to notice, notice one in the text, and here it is. It's that the, the life of faith and the promises of God is difficult because of the gap between what God promises and what we experience. There is a gap between what God promises and what we experience. And it's in that gap where suffering lives. It's in that gap where disappointment and confusion and heartache live. Think about Abraham's Life. In Genesis 11 and 12, Abraham had been living in Ur of the Chaldeans for his entire life. And at the age of 75, God calls him to himself. And he makes these great promises to him. He says, I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And, I, and through you, I will bless all the families of the earth. What great promises. Incredible promises. Then in Genesis 15, Abraham says to God, you've made these great promises to me, and I appreciate those promises, but I don't have any kids. And so Eliezer of Damascus will be my heir. 
And so all the stuff that you've given me, I'm thankful for, but it's just going to go to Eliezer, a servant born in my home. He says, what can you give me since you haven't given me a son? And so God says to Abraham, no, Eliezer will not be your heir, but one who comes from your own body will be your heir. And so God makes this promise, you will, from your own body, have a son who will be your heir. And through that son, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What a promise. But what does Abraham experience? He receives the promise. What does he experience? Well, for 10 years, from that point on, for 10 years, he and Sarah tried to have, have a child. And they had already been trying for like 70 years to have children, and they couldn't do it. And so they, they keep trying, and they keep trying, and they keep trying, and they keep trying. And Abraham knows the promise of God, but what he experiences is not the promise of God. He doesn't experience it. He's not having children. He doesn't have a child. They keep trying and they keep failing. They keep trying and they keep failing. What they're experiencing is barrenness. And that would have gotten old. Abram, the name Abram means exalted father or daddy. That's what it means. It means exalted father. And I can envision. It's easy for me to envision Abram meeting someone that for the first time. You know, Abram was a very significant person. A lot of money did a lot of business dealings, had a lot of business dealings. I can envision him meeting someone, and they introduce themselves, and he says, I'm Abram. Oh, what a great name, Abram, exalted father. How many kids do you have? Zero. I have zero. And that would get old over the course of time. You have zero kids? And see, not having kids was a sign during this time period. It was a sign of not being blessed by God, not being blessed by God. But God had made these great promises to Abram. He says, I'm going to bless you, and, I'm, and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. But he was walking around with the sign of not being blessed by God. So he knows the promise, but there's a gap between what God promises and what he experiences. This is one of the reasons the life of faith is difficult. If we received what God promised immediately, it would not be difficult. There would be almost no challenge. But see, from the time God makes us a promise, we understand the promise, we believe the promise, to the time we experience the promise. It's not immediate. There's a gap there. And this is why it's difficult. And look what happens to Abram as he's waiting to, for God to fulfill his promise. In Genesis 16, verse 2, Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord, this is a statement of fact, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave, perhaps through her, I can build a family. So in that gap, while they're waiting, they're not experiencing the promise of God. As they're waiting, Sarah, Sarai says, hey, we've got to come up with a different plan. This is not working at all. This is not working at all. So why don't you sleep with Hagar, my servant? And look, at, well, look what Abram says. And Abram said, Sarai, is this a trap? I just made up that verse. He doesn't say that. That's what he should have said. But he didn't say that. Look what he actually says. And Abram agreed to what Sarah said. He agreed. He's like, oh, that's a great, great idea, honey. How about I go sleep with someone else? So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. Now, as you read it, you say, oh, no, don't do it, Abram. What, why would you ever do that? Why would you compromise like this? Why would you sin in this way? Well, there's a clue in the text in verse 3. It says, this happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan, for 10 years, for 10 years, he was waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. He grew weary and exhausted and he gave in to temptation because there's a gap between what God promises and what we experience. He lost heart. 
he fell into sin. And he has this son, Ishmael. And after Ishmael is born, there are 13 years of silence. So think about that if you're Abram. You fail. You have this son, Ishmael. You wanted a son. Now you have Ishmael. And for 13 years, God doesn't speak to you. You don't hear from God for 13 years. Then in chapter 17, 13 years of not hearing from God, God shows up and says, Abram, Sarah is going to have the child I promised you. Wow. This means that Ishmael, this boy that you love, is not the child of promise. I mean, all those, I mean, think about those days, day after day, Abram wanting a son, and then he doesn't have one, and then he gets a son, and he's raising the son. And I'm convinced that Abram was convinced that Ishmael was the child of promise. That through, it would be through Ishmael that all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Abram is thinking to himself, man, this is a very special child. This is the child that God is going to use to bless the entire world. But when God shows up in Genesis chapter 17 and he says, no, Sarah will have a child. Sarah will have the child of promise. You see, I can see how Abram would think, oh, Lord, I don't like that plan very much. And that's why he says, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. Can you just go with Ishmael? He's right here. <laughs> He's right here, right? Just go with Ishmael. Go with Ishmael. Now, as I was studying Genesis 17, I had this moment that filled my heart with joy. I mean, I, 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 was, I was surprised by it. I, I, was, I was not expecting it. I'm just studying it, trying to get my head into the text, my head into the story. I'm going through it. I read verse 18. If only Ishmael were acceptable to you, my heart is going out to Abram. I'm thinking about Abram as a dad. If only Ishmael were acceptable to you. It is... It is a reasonable request that Abram is making. And then I read the next verse, and I said, oh, praise God. Oh, praise God. There's good news here. There's really good news here for us, and we cannot miss this truth in the story. And if your soul can grab a hold of this truth, it will bless you. It will help you. Okay, so here it is. Where's the good news? Verse 18. So Abram said to God, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you. Verse 19. But God said, no. No. And I just put my pen, my pen down, and I began to praise God. That God looks at Abram, making a reasonable request. Abram genuinely desires this. It's reasonable, and God says no. No. Praise God that God says no. See, we tend to think when God says no to our prayers, we think it is because God is mean. We think it's because God is unloving. We think that God is stingy that God doesn't care about us, that God's not paying attention to us, but that's not true at all. What we learn in the no, in the story, is this principle, that God says no to Abraham because God has a better plan for Abraham. That God says no to Abraham, not because he's stingy, not because he's merciless, not because he's cruel, not because he doesn't care about Abraham. It's because God actually has a better plan for Abraham. And that should be good news for our souls. Because it means that a no from God never comes from a stingy heart, a cruel heart, a merciless heart. When God says no to you, it's because he has something better for you. And if you could see his plan for you, you would thank God for saying no to you. And that should give us great comfort that, that our God, if you're a Christian, that our God in heaven, he rules and reigns over all things, and he is working, to, he is working for good everything that comes into our life, even when it doesn't make sense. And when I say better, that God has a better plan for you. I, I want to be really clear about what I don't mean. 
I don't mean if you want a job, making $250,000 a year, you apply for the job and God says no. I'm not saying that's because God is saying, I have something better for you, a $500,000 a year job. That's not what I mean. Or if a somewhat attractive girl says no to you, it's because God says no. A really attractive girl is going to say yes. That's not what I mean by that at all. That's not what I mean by better. When I say better, what I mean is the way God is working you into his story. It's the way that God is fitting you into his story. He's going to fit your life, your gifts, your strengths, your weaknesses, your suffering, your pain, your disappointments into his eternal glorious plan. So that at the very end, when we turn around and we look at all that we walked through, we'll say, praise God. (laughs) He is so merciful. He is so gracious. And so God looks at Abraham and says, no. No, I have something better for you. Verse 18, or verse 19. But God said, no, your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. Now, Isaac, the name Isaac in Hebrew literally means laughter or one who laughs. This is God dunking on Abraham just a little bit. Not two-handed, not a two-handed throw down, just a one-handed tip dunk. That's what it is. He's saying, you laughed at my promise. You laughed at my promise. But when I fulfill my promise, you're going to name, you're going to name your son Isaac, one who laughs. So every time he looks at, at Isaac, one who laughs, one who laughs. Now, what about Ishmael? What about Ishmael? I mean, this is the burden of Abraham's heart, my son, my firstborn son, Ishmael. Verse 20, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will certainly bless him. I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He will father 12 tribal leaders, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will confirm my covenant with Isaac. It is through Isaac that I will keep my covenant. I will bless Ishmael, but he's, he, I'm not confirming my covenant with Ishmael. I'm confirming my covenant with Isaac. It's through Isaac and his descendants that all the families of the earth will be blessed. But I will confirm my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. And when he finished talking with him, God withdrew from Abraham. Now, each time God speaks to Abraham, the plan gets more and more clear. So at the beginning, it's big and broad. And as God speaks to Abraham, his plan gets bigger and better and more clear. Which leads to the second part of the story I want to look at, which is that Abraham obeys. Abraham obeys. And there are three aspects of Abraham's obedience that I hope you will take to heart. Because see, Abraham, he is He is the example of faith that we are to follow. He's the father. Paul calls him the father of faith. He is the father of faith. And so his obedience comes from a heart of faith. It's not legalistic. It comes from a heart of faith. And so there are three aspects of his obedience that I think we need to learn from. Number one is that Abraham obeys immediately. He obeys immediately. He's not delaying He obeys right away. Look at verse 23. So Abraham took his son Ishmael, and those born in his household were purchased every male among the members of Abraham's household, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin on that very day, just as God had said to him. So he doesn't delay at all. He he gets down to business. And if you were to ask Abraham, why are you going to circumcise your entire household? One scholar I read this week said there were likely over 1,000 men in his household. 1,000 men. Why are you going to circumcise 1,000, over 1,000 men? Answer, God told me to. 
God told me to. That's the basis of our relationship with God. He is our Lord. He is our God. And to worship him is to obey him. To worship him is to, we just obey him. Why are you, why are you doing this right now? Why are you doing this right now? Because God told me to. I have a promise from God and I have a knife. So everyone's getting circumcised today. Everyone's getting circumcised. <laughs> so he obeys immediately. And this should be the heart of faith that we have. God says something. Now, if you're not sure what God has said, I'm not saying just go out and do stuff, but when it's clear what God has said, do not delay, obey. Secondly, Abraham obeyed completely. Abraham obeyed complete, completely. It says every male among the members of Abraham's household, and he circumcised them. Whoa. <laughs> he obeyed completely. I'm sure this was not a popular move in Abraham's household. I mean, can you, can you imagine the rumors spreading in the camp? <laughs> Abraham met with God, and he wants him to do what? Not popular at all. We need to get a second opinion. <laughs> God, Abraham, go back and meet with God just to double check. But he, that's not what happens. He obeys completely. He obeys immediately. He obeys completely. completely. Number three, Abraham obeyed, obeys painfully. Painfully. In verse 23, we see that Abraham is the one doing the circumcision. <laughs> He's the one doing the circumcision. And then there's this transition that happens. Can you imagine this moment in your mind? On second thought, maybe you shouldn't imagine this moment in your mind, but it's his turn. So every, everyone's circumcised, and now it's his turn. Verse 24, Abraham was 99 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised. I have to imagine that circumcising yourself will make you question your existence as a human being. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? I'm, I'm sure Abraham did not do this because he felt like it. He didn't wake up you know, saying to himself, man, I really want to have a circumcision party today. I really want to circumcise myself today. That's not what happened. His heart was full of faith in the word of God. He knew who God is. He knew, he, I know who God is. And so a heart full of faith, he obeyed even though it was painful. And brothers and sisters, God asks us to obey, obey him painfully. If you only obey when it's easy, your heart really doesn't belong to God. Your heart is tested in obedience when it's painful when it's challenging, when you don't feel like it. That's when your faith is tested. And here, he obeys from the heart. And I've observed over the years that many people avoid the areas of obedience that are difficult. We just, the, the hard parts of the Christian life, we just avoid. We don't, we don't obey when it gets difficult. And we ought not to be that way. We wanna be the type of men and women that obey God in all areas of our life, full of faith, trusting in the word of God, not legalistic, not legalistically, not self-righteously, but with a heart filled with faith, we obey God from the heart, even when it's difficult. We don't wanna just skip the difficult areas of obedience, and that's what happens so often. Uh, prayer is difficult, skip it. Evangelism, difficult, skip it. Giving is difficult, skip it. Forgiveness is difficult, just skip that, just skip it. And let's reduce Christianity down to just being a nice person. But that is not the nature of following Christ. 
We want, we want to be the type of people that obey him in all areas of life. We don't want to avoid the difficult areas of life. And you know what I've observed over the years? Is that when it's painful to obey God, when it's difficult, when it hurts, when it makes you think, that's when you often grow the most. That's often when you experience the most blessing, even though it's hard, even though it's challenging. And so I want to ask you a question this morning. Are there any areas, any painful, difficult areas of obedience in your life that you're skipping? Are there any difficult areas of obedience that you're skipping, that you're just ignoring? We ought not to be that way. My prayer this week has been that today would be the day where you obey God from the heart. You just desi- you, you decide, whatever you say, Lord, I'm gonna do by faith, that you would obey him immediately, you would obey him completely, and you would, you would obey him painfully from the heart. Not to earn your salvation. Salvation is a gift that's received by faith. It it, it is accomplished from start to finish by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't earn it, but we are to be men and women who obey him from the heart. Now, just to close, I'm gonna give you one point of application. Here's the point of application. I have 10, I'm gonna give you one. It's understand the purpose of circumcision. Just understand it. I I hope it's not too mysterious, it's too weird. Just understand the purpose of circumcision. Genesis 17 says that circumcision is a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants. It is a sign. What is circumcision? It's a sign of the covenant. And God says if any males are not circumcised, in other words, if they're not cut, then they are cut off from God. If they are not cut, then they are cut off from God. And I've been thinking for a couple of weeks now about the sign of the covenant, circumcision. I've been thinking, why circumcision? Why not a tattoo? Why not an earring? Just give me an earring. Or if, I, if I was Abraham, that's what I would be thinking. Just anything. I don't care. Why circumcision? It's bloody. It's gory. It's intimate. It's private. It's painful. Why? Why circumcision? I'm going to give you a couple of reasons. And I, I can't be too dogmatic about these reasons, but this is what I think is going on here. Reason number one is the nature of the promise. Why circumcision? It's a sign, but why that sign? It's the nature of the promise. God promised Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, which requires the male sexual organ. And so God, he marked his people. He marked the male sexual organ as a reminder of the nature of his promise, that through you, through you, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Reason number two is the nature of the problem. It is the nature of the problem. Human beings are sinful. And the most obvious manifestation of sin in our lives is sexual sin. This is the, the most, just in the world, go look at the world, and what you'll see is the most obvious manifestation of sin in, our, in, in the world is sexual sin. Think about the story for a moment. Abraham had several significant failures when he was walking with God, but Arguably, the most significant failure is when he sleeps with Hagar. It's when he sins sexually with Hagar. This is an obvious manifestation of sin in Abram's life that leads to all kinds of pain and chaos. And see, this is, this is at the very heart of the human condition. If you want to know what's wrong with human beings when it comes to sin, one of the foundational areas of sin in the human experience is sexual sin. It's sexual sin. We sin sexually. 
And we're at a point as a nation where we have an entire month devoted to sexual sin. We have an entire month devoted to sexual perversion. Uh, I saw a billboard yesterday that says, enjoy your pride with the rainbow flag. And I just thought, oh, oh God. I've been thinking about Proverbs 16, 18, pride comes before destruction. And an arrogant spirit before a fall. Psalm 138.6, though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. Uh, It is insane as a nation that we would celebrate pride and sexual perversion. It is a sign of our downfall. And just just because you're not homosexual or transgender doesn't mean you don't sin sexually. Of course, there are all forms, all kinds of sexual sin. But see, God in his wisdom He marked the male sexual organ as a sign that you belong to God. You belong to God. You don't belong to yourself. And that part of you is not for yourself. That all of life, all of life is to be done as an act of worship for the Lord Jesus Christ, including your sex life. And if you don't obey God in your sex life, you don't obey him. That's the test. That's one of the most foundational test about whether or not you will love and worship God. And so I believe circumcision is given as a sign because of the nature of the problem. Number three is the nature of righteousness. The nature of righteousness. Romans 4.11, and he received the sign of circumcision, Abraham did, as a seal of the righteousness that that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. And so Paul is thinking about the story of Abraham and he he says about Abraham, he says that he received circumcision as a sign or as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. It's a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. In other words, circumcision, the cutting away of the flesh, the cutting away of the foreskin is a picture of becoming a Christian. That's what he's saying. It's a picture of the work of the Spirit in someone's life. It's another description of what it means to become a Christian. And see, circumcision, the practice of circumcision, was designed to point to true circumcision, ultimate circumcision, the circumcision that saves the soul. Romans 2, 28, for a person is not a Jew who is is one outwardly. Did you hear that? A person is not a true worshiper of God who is one outwardly. And true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. There is such a thing as true circumcision, ultimate circumcision. And physical circumcision is not true circumcision. That's what Paul's arguing. On the contrary, verse 29, a person is a Jew, a true worshiper of God, who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. And so this practice of circumcision was to teach us about this idea of the cutting away, cutting away of the flesh. It's to teach us about the idea of being separate unto God, in covenant with God. And it was to point to true circumcision. When someone is born again, when someone becomes a Christian, this is the work of God in the human heart. When Christ is proclaimed, when the gospel is lifted up, there's a work of the Spirit that must be done. And it's described here as circumcising the heart. What's wrong with human beings? We have uncircumcised hearts. We have hearts, hearts of flesh that blind us to the glory of God, that we don't see who he is. 
And in order for someone to become a Christian, the Holy Spirit must circumcise the heart, cut away the flesh, that we might see the glory of Christ. And this is what is predicted even back in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart. I love that. And your hearts, and the hearts of your descendants. Now, what does it mean to have a circumcised heart? What does that mean? And you will love him with all of your heart and all of your soul so that you will live. That's A circumcised heart is a heart that's been marked by the Spirit of God that you might see and enjoy the glory and greatness of God, that you might love God. And you see this all the time. You see this all the time where Christ is proclaimed. You see that people hear the gospel and they have no interest in Christ. They don't care about Christ at all. And what they need is the work of the Spirit. Everybody says, everybody agrees, we can't change people's hearts. It's only God who can change people's hearts. Amen, yes, amen, that's true. But what does he do when he changes someone's heart? He circumcises it. He cuts away the flesh that we might behold the glory of Christ, that we might love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so, this is the very heartbeat of the covenant, Genesis 17.1, if you go back and look at it, this is the very goal of what God was going after in the covenant itself. It says, when Abram, Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty, live in my presence and be blameless. This is, this is why you exist. You exist to know God. You exist to obey God. You exist to walk with God by faith. And so, I'll just ask you this morning, has your heart been circumcised by the Spirit? Do you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you, when you look at Christ, do you see the glory of God? Do you see his substitutionary death for you? Do you see his love for you? And do you love him back? That's what it means to have a circumcised heart. And as Christians, we are to walk in faith and obedience to him all the days of our life. So brothers and sisters, don't skip difficult obedience. Don't live by the flesh. Trust God and obey him from the heart. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your love. Help us to 